Why did I get the feeling you were kind of teasing us on that piano? So appreciate you leading us this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, open up to the Gospel of John. We're in a verse-by-verse study through this great gospel, the Gospel of John. And this morning we're in chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 35 through 42. So I've entitled this sermon's uh, title as a first look at discipleship. A first look at discipleship. So if you have a bulletin, in that bulletin are some notes. If you want to follow along, feel free. If not, you can just listen up as we look at this passage together. We're talking about the first look at discipleship. John chapter 1, 35 and following, we read this. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus, and he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, And they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. And so they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the vibrant time we've had of worship. Thank you for the reminder of us giving our all for you. Thank you for the word of God that we can read today, knowing that it's inspired and infallible and inerrant. And as we consider this first look at discipleship in the gospel of John, I pray that you would grab our hearts and draw us in close, that we might learn the lessons that you want us to learn today so that we can live as disciples of Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, we're going to take a first look at the topic of discipleship. And what we're going to see is that the central purpose of this passage, verses 35 through 42, and then next week's passage, we'll look at 43 through 51, the whole center focus of this whole passage is to explain how Jesus was first exposed to some of his disciples. We're going to see how Andrew, John, Peter, Philip and Nathaniel were all introduced to Jesus for the very first time. Now, there may be some Bible students here who have experienced the difficulty of the calling of disciples here in the Gospel of John and how you would read about the calling of disciples in the Synoptic Gospels, such as the account in Mark. Take Mark 1, 16 through 20, for example. It says, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, they saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So when you read the Mark account, which kind of represents the synoptic view, and you read the John account, they sound rather different. And the simple answer to that dilemma is the good news that there is nothing to harmonize because there is no contradiction between these two accounts. The truth is that Mark and John are not writing on the same 
occurrence. Mark's gospel is describing something that happened at a later date when the disciples were formally called into service. John's gospel is simply describing these disciples and their very first encounter with Jesus. Mark's gospel is describing what happened in Galilee. John's gospel is describing what happened in Jerusalem as he sees these men for the very first time. Now, it is deeply interesting to overview the manner in which these first disciples found the Savior in our text for today and again next week. They did not all come to Jesus in the same way, for God does not confine himself to any particular method when he calls his own. How important it is for us to remember that according to God's providence and God's calling, he can save any person at any time in any way that he chooses, all by his sovereign grace. Let me show you what I mean. There are three different ways that these first disciples and this passage are called. First, the two disciples of verses 25 through 27, and we'll discover later that one of those is Andrew, and I believe the other one is John, the writer of this gospel. Those two disciples and those verses heard the proclamation of the fact that Jesus is the Lamb of God. And as a response to this message, they promptly sought out the Savior for themselves. Second, Simon Peter was brought to Christ by his brother Andrew, who had followed and found the Savior on the previous day. This is also how we'll find that Nathaniel came to Christ as he was brought to Christ by Philip. Third, Philip seemed to have no believer to help him. And that's why we read in verse 43, he, that is Jesus, found Philip and said to him, follow me. Putting these three different conversion experiences together, here's what we observe. The first, Andrew and John, found Christ as a result of the preacher's message. It was under the preaching of the word of God, as John the Baptist proclaimed, Behold the Lamb of God, that these two men got converted. The second, Peter and Nathaniel, found Christ as the result of the personal work of evangelism by another believer. It was Andrew who went out and brought Peter in. It was Philip that went out and brought Nathaniel in. They came not directly by the preaching of the word of God, but they came through the personal evangelism and effort of another. The third type of conversion experience we read is Philip. Now, he's just found by Christ. No human instrument was employed by God, but rather he was found by Christ's direct pursuit. Let me ask you this morning as we consider those three experiences of conversion, how were you converted this morning? How were you? You look back on your life and your testimony of how you came to Christ. I wonder if you would say that you came to Christ through the preaching of the word of God. It was it while you were sitting under the preaching of the gospel in a sermon, in a Sunday school class, at camp, at a retreat, at a conference? No doubt the Bible places great emphasis on the preaching of the word as that of utmost importance in the saving of sinners. But this passage also teaches the importance of a family member or a friend. Did you come to Christ through the efforts of your mom, your dad? Your brother, your sister, a friend that just wouldn't let you go. They kept hounding you. They kept after you until you came and bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Or how about God pursuing you directly through his sovereign grace? Maybe you're here this morning and you say, well, it wasn't through a preacher. It wasn't through a family member or a friend. But at some point in my life, I hit rock bottom. And I knew there was a God. And somehow God pursued me. 
and I learned the gospel, and then he saved me by his divine grace. I wonder how it is that you came to Christ today. As you think about that, this morning we're going to examine the characteristics of being a true disciple. Because the truth is, whether you were saved through the preaching of the word, or the personal evangelism of a family member or a friend, or God saved you by his sovereign grace, when you became a Christian, you became a disciple of Christ. There's a lot of teaching in the church today that would say it's possible for you to get saved but not be a genuine disciple. It's possible for you to get saved and get your fire insurance, but you're not really giving your life away every moment and every day. And I want you to know that's false teaching. When Christ calls a believer into his body, he calls him to be a faithful disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Christ calls you out of darkness into light, he calls you to a complete change from the inside out. And so whether you were converted through the preaching or through the evangelism of the friend or through the sovereign grace of God, if you're Christ this morning, you are his disciple. And what that looks like is what we'll see here in this text, a couple of first looks at the idea of discipleship. So I'm going to give you five characteristics of every true disciple. And as we go through this sermon this morning, it may be that you sit there and you realize that you're comfortable calling yourself a Christian, but you realize this morning that you're not really a disciple. And if that's you this morning, then I'm praying that throughout this service, you'll be called out of darkness into light, and you'll be converted this day through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So listen with me. I'm going to start preaching here in a minute. All right? You ready? Here we go. Number one. Number one, the first characteristic of being a true disciple, a true disciple makes the transition. A true disciple makes the transition. Here's your first sub point and your first blank if you're taking notes. A good discipler spends time with those he is discipling. Look at verse 35. Here we read that the next day, again, John, and that would be John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. A good discipler spends time with those he is discipling. First of all, I want you to notice in the text it says the next day. Now, I haven't pointed this out yet, but this particular week of ministry in the life of John the Baptist was very eventful. It was on day one that John the Baptist gave his testimony regarding Jesus in verses 19 through 28. It was on day two that John had his initial encounter with Jesus in verses 29 through 34. This week's sermon is on day three, where John refers two of his disciples to Jesus. We'll see a little bit later this morning, day four, how Andrew introduces Peter to Jesus in verses 40 and 42. And then next week, we'll look at day five, this week of ministry of the Baptist, day five, where Philip and Nathaniel follow Jesus, verses 43 through 51. And so we could say, in a sort, this is a, a week of transition. So far, John the Baptist has been on the scene pointing us to Christ. And what happens during the course of this week is John the Baptist is going to bow out of the limelight. He's going to get off center stage, and the Lord Jesus is going to come and take things over. The Lord Jesus will come, and for the rest of this gospel, he will be the preeminent focus of the author of this gospel, John. I mean, it was John the Baptist who does write a couple of chapters later, he must increase, but I must decrease, John 3.30. And so as John the Baptist is getting ready to make his exit, we learn three things from the Baptist about discipleship. And the first one is the point that we're looking at at this moment is John the Baptist is spending time with his disciples. I mean, John the Baptist had a lot of people who were following him closely. As we've been examining the life of John the Baptist, I read to you about how John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. 
then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. There was a whole lot of people coming out of the establishment, going out into a more rural area to listen and look at and learn from John the Baptist. And so he had a lot of disciples that were following him. In fact, in Mark chapter 2, verse 18, it says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? And so John's disciples were, again, following John the Baptist, and fasting is a, is a regular spiritual discipline together with John. We also read in Luke 7, 18 and 19, the disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to himself, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who has come, or shall we look for another? Remember that? A little bit later, after he's arrested, he, some of his disciples are tending to him, and he sends them to Christ to say, Ask him, are you the Christ, or is there another? And so what we see in these different passages is that John the Baptist was a disciple-maker. John the Baptist had people following him. He spent time teaching them. He spent time baptizing them. He spent time fasting with them. He spent time attending their needs. And then when he had a need, when he was in prison, it was his disciples that were loyal to him, and they still hung in tight with their mentor. That's what good discipleship requires, time together. Discipleship equals time together. Teaching, yes. Life on life, yes. Good times, yes. Bad times, yes. But what I'm saying to you this morning, and this is what I want you to hear, Placerita, is that in addition to Bible teaching, what John did that is vital to discipleship is he spent time together with his disciples. I would say to you this morning, discipleship requires two things. This isn't in your notes, but two things. Discipleship requires shared time and shared experiences. Shared time, that means you got to spend time together. You can't be discipled just by hearing somebody teach a class. If you want to be discipled by that person or someone who has influence, you have to spend time together. Shared time, time together, and then shared experiences. When y'all get together, y'all need to do something. When you're hanging out together with the person who's mentoring you, it's not all just about talk, but it's about doing things together. It may be doing ministry together. It may be preparing a meal together. It may be going to visit somebody in the hospital together. It could be just coming and hanging out with my wife, like some young girls do from time to time, just to watch how do you run a household of five lovely, energetic, exuberant children. That's discipleship, right? It's not always sitting down with a book at Starbucks for one hour a day or a week. One hour a day, that's a lot. But one, one hour once a week, that could be part of it. But part of it is also shared time and shared experiences. The second thing that we learn from John the Baptist about discipleship is this, and this is your next blank, a good discipler points his disciples to Jesus. Look at verse 36 with me, if you will. And he looked at Jesus, and he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now, you know we spent a long time last week talking about the significance of this statement that John the Baptist pointed to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We learned last week that Jesus is the Lamb typified in Genesis chapter 4. We learned last week that the Lamb is also symbolized in Genesis 22. The Lamb was personified in Isaiah 53. And here in John 1, 29, behold the Lamb, he is now 
identified. This is the Lamb of God. And this is a message that John the Baptist is repeating day after day. It's another good sign of discipleship. It takes reiterating the truth of the gospel. Day after day, John the Baptist is pointing to his disciples and pointing to the crowd that came to hear him preach. And he says, now, there is the Lamb of God. And that's what we need to be doing, isn't it, church? We need to be repeating the message of the gospel. We need to be repeating day after day, look to the Lamb. Be reminded of his love for you. Look to Christ. Heed his message. Cling to his teaching. Hold tight to his truth. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. I mean, I don't know about you, but the first thing I try to do when I get down, and I'm having a rough day as well, is at least I know I'm saved. At least I know God loves me. At least I know he saved me. At least I know I deserve worse. I deserve his judgment and his wrath, but he's given me heaven. It's not so bad of a day after all, is it? When you start preaching the gospel to yourself every day. And you know, the truth is, there's a lot of denominations in Christianity and in evangelicalism, especially here in the States. There are Methodists who place special emphasis on the teachings of John and Charles Wesley. There are Lutherans who hold tightly to the teachings of Martin Luther. There are Baptists who hold tightly to the beginnings of the messages of John the Baptist. And there are some who can tell you more about their denomination than they can tell you about the Bible. And it ought not be so. What we ought to really be about is about Christ. And while there may be particular denominations who have particular emphases, there are some who can defend their denomination who cannot defend the gospel. And what we need to be reminded of this morning is it's all about Christ. It's about him crucified. It's about him being raised from the dead. It's not right for us to get too possessive and proud of our denominations. What we need to be proud of is the fact that Jesus Christ came as a lamb, that he died on a cross for the sins of the world, and you can go out to anybody, anywhere, at any time, and tell them to look to Christ. Behold the lamb of God. Men and women are converted by the gospel, not by the church. It is by exalting Christ, not the denomination. Christ and not Sunday school. Christ and not the ministry. It is by the means of preaching Christ that hearts are moved and sinners are turned to God. To the world, such a testimony may seem weak and foolish, but to God, there is nothing more precious than the blood of his son. You ever been in a witnessing conversation with somebody and all of a sudden you felt so weak and so nimble because all you had was the gospel? And you were tempted to maybe make a bold claim about this stat or this piece of history or this piece of science because you thought maybe the gospel just wasn't quite enough to really change the underpinnings of that person's thinking in their mind. God forbid that we would ever look to something else other than Christ as the means of conversion. It's J.C. Ryle who writes in his expository thoughts of the gospel in this passage, he writes this, quote, Like the ram's horns before whose blast the walls of Jericho fell down, this testimony is mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. The story of the crucified Lamb of God has proved in every age the power of God unto salvation. Those who have done most for Christ's cause in every part of the world have been men like John the Baptist. They have not cried Behold me, or behold the church, or behold the ordinances, but they have cried out, Behold the Lamb. If souls are to be saved, men must be pointing directly to Christ. Isn't that what it's all about today? I hope you're here today for Christ. I hope you're not here for the music. 
ultimately. I hope you're not here for the decor, ultimately. I hope you're not here for other people, ultimately. I hope you're here for Christ. I hope you're here today because you're desperate and you want to come to a place where the truth will be preached, where Christ will be exalted, where lives can be changed because you're not going to find it in your week and you're not going to find it at your work and you're not going to find it on the TV. I don't care how many Hallmark movies you watch. It won't make it Christmas until you come back to Christ until you come to him and bow at his feet. And so make sure today that your allegiance is not to a man or a movement, but that your allegiance is to Christ. The third thing that John the Baptist teaches us about discipleship, your next blank here, a good discipler encourages his followers to follow Christ. Look at verse 37 with me, if you will. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Now, these two disciples here, I told you already, were Andrew. We get that from verse 40. So skip down to verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So we know one of these two disciples in verse 37 is clearly marked out to be Andrew. He's one of the two. And the other disciple was most likely the apostle John. We know that because he typically doesn't name himself, and and he's purposefully avoiding the name of this second apostle. And so we believe that most likely to be John the apostle. And there's another reason I'm going to tell you why I think it's John a little bit later in the text. For now, Let me just say the word follow here. Again, we're looking at this verse about how they followed Christ. In verse 37, they see him, right? And they follow Jesus. This word follow here is the combination of a two-part word. In the original language, it's the combination of a word that would represent a particle of a union and also the word road. And so the idea behind this word is that you're part of the same road. You are walking down the same path. To follow means you're advancing down the same road. Your walk is in the same direction as of the person that you're following. That's part of what the idea of the word follow means. And John the Baptist has been teaching about beholding the Lamb. So these two disciples did. I mean, he's been pointing, behold the Lamb, behold the Lamb, behold the Lamb. And wouldn't you know it that there on that certain day, in verse 37, these two disciples heard the Baptist say this, And then they followed. This means that they left John the Baptist and they started following Christ. We're talking about here a good discipler encourages his followers to follow Jesus. They left the Baptist. They followed Christ. And how God has used this text in my heart this very week to remind me to, first of all, to make sure I'm pointing people I'm trying to disciple to Christ. I don't want to point them to me. I don't want to point them to this church. I don't want to point them to a certain ministry. First, I must point them to Christ. It is true that the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, imitate me as I follow Christ, right? As I imitate Christ. In other words, we're never to ultimately follow other people. We're only following the Christ they follow. And so in addition to me telling others to follow Christ, if I'm doing this faithfully, then I need to be willing to let them go. You guys know we live in an area that's pretty transient where we raise up people, whether it be through the college or through the seminary, and we send them out. And I wish we could hold on to everybody because I love everybody. And we like to fellowship with one another. And sometimes we raise people up to send them out. And sometimes what you're going to find is you're going to raise somebody up and you're going to spend time with them. And then they're going to want to go to a different ministry. And they're going to want to maybe go to a different church. And they're going to maybe get involved somewhere else doing something else. And the initial 
feeling behind that might have been what John the Baptist experienced of something to the degree of like, I want you to behold Christ, but can't you stay with me? I mean, I need some help in my church, right? So the idea here, I believe, is for us to learn a lesson that if somebody's following Christ, don't be too possessive. If somebody's following Christ and they want to move from your small group to another, let them go. Somebody's in your ministry and they want to move to a different ministry, let them go. You know what? I have to learn as a pastor, if somebody's at this church and they want to go to a different church, as long as that church is preaching the gospel, then I've got to do what? I've got to let them go because I'm not pointing them to PBC. I'm pointing them to Christ. And as long as I know they're pursuing Christ, then I need to learn to let them go. It's not about us building our kingdom. It's about us building his kingdom. And when we all work together as a church and we get that, it's a lot easier when people come in and go out as long as they're coming in and going out for gospel reasons to serve in other gospel churches. And if they're not, then we got to go after them, right? If they're not going from here to another gospel church, that's where we go after them because it may be they fell in the ditch. And Jesus left the 99, and he went to find the one lamb in the ditch, the one sheep in the ditch, to pull them back. So we just can go after people, but not if they're going to another gospel teaching church. All right, let's move on to a second lesson that we can learn about discipleship this morning. Number two, a true disciple lives a life of evaluation. The first blank under this point would be this. Discipleship is about honestly answering hard Questions. Look at verse 38 with me. If you will, Jesus turned and he saw them following him and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? So the first part of the verse is what we're looking at here. Jesus saw both Andrew and John following after him. So he simply turns and he looks at them and asks a very simple question What are you seeking? It's interesting to note these are the first words recorded by John, the writer of the gospel. The first words of Christ recorded by Matthew at Christ's baptism is when Christ said, let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for me to fulfill all righteousness. That was at his baptism. The first words of Christ recorded by Mark happened to be just his first message where Jesus said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. The first words recorded by Luke was when Jesus was 12 years old. And you remember he was at the temple, right? His parents had to come back and get him. And in Luke 2.49, Jesus said, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? The first words recorded by John the Baptist, or excuse me, John the Apostle, talking here about Christ are these words, again, that we've just read here in this verse, verse 38, where Jesus simply asked the question, What are you seeking? Now, each gospel author had a point and a purpose in recording what he did as Jesus' first words in that gospel. So the question would be, well, what's John's purpose? Out of all the words that Jesus spoke, why did he choose to record these words as the very first words he would pen in the gospel of John? For that, that is the question that we're asking, and I'm saying that it, it has something to do with the purpose of the gospel. Remember, we've been talking about the purpose of the gospel of John is for us to see Jesus as the Son of God. In fact, the theme of the whole gospel is in John 20, verse 31, where we read, but these things were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So I think what Jesus is doing is asking this question, what are you seeking? He's asking this question because he wants to know if the same thing they're seeking is the same thing he's seeking. 
You see, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came to help people see him as the Son of God. And he wants to know, what is it that you are seeking? And you understand that, that Jesus already knows the answer to the question, right? He's not asking any question at any time because he needs information. He already knows what's in a man. So Christ's questions are not for him to learn new information, but rather for us to do an honest evaluation of our own hearts. Jesus could well ask the same question of us this morning, what are you seeking? You've been kind of following around Christ a little bit. You've been in and out of church and Jesus is asking these two guys, and he's asking us in retrospect, in a sense today, what are you seeking? I wonder how you would answer that question this morning. What are you seeking? For the way you answer that question reveals your true heart. Are you seeking a good life? Are you seeking comfort? Are you seeking control? Are you seeking happiness? Are you seeking fulfillment in your job? Are you seeking a loving marriage? Are you seeking a great family life? Are you seeking satisfaction in your hobby? A true disciple lives a life of evaluation. And we must constantly be searching our hearts to see if our desires match up with what God's desires for us would be. And I think that's part of what Christ is doing. He's asking them, what is it that you're really after? And I wondered this morning if you could answer that question in a way that would honor the Lord, or if you were really answering that question, you would have to give a selfish answer. I wonder this morning if you could answer it like the psalmist did in Psalm 27, 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord, and this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. I wonder if you could answer that question like the psalmist does in Psalm 42, 1, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. I wonder if you could answer it like what Peter writes about in 1 Peter 2, 2, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Do you long for the word like that? I just was talking to a new dad this past week, and he was telling me about how he was reminded as that baby was crying all night, all through the day, give me some milk, give me some milk, gotta have my milk that he was just reminded that that verse leapt off the page at him and convicted him in his heart that, you know what, am I really seeking Christ like that? Am I crying out for more of him? What is it that I'm seeking? Can you say this morning that you're longing to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord? Are you panting for God? Are you longing for the pure milk of the words? What are you seeking? We've got to do some honest evaluation of our heart this morning. And the second thing I want to say about this point would be this. Not only do we have to, uh, to, to honestly answer difficult questions, but the second blank here says this. Discipleship is about curiously asking practically, uh, practical questions. About curiously asking practical questions. Now notice again at the end of this verse 39 or verse 38, Jesus asked them, verse 38, what are you seeking? And they said to him, remember it's Andrew and John here, they said to him, rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? So discipleship is about curiously asking practical questions. Notice that the disciples call Jesus rabbi, which the text tells us means teacher. They have a great deal of respect for him, but that, that may not be the best way to relate to him, right? We don't want to think of him just as a teacher like any great teacher. We want to see him as the son of God. And yet they do show respect in how they say this, and the disciples 
answer Jesus' question with a question. They say, where are you staying? Now, this word staying is a very common word used by the author John. It's the word meno. It means to abide. It means to remain. It means to continue. It means to stay. Right? They want to know, where are you abiding? Where are you staying? Where, where are you dwelling? That's an interesting question because we know that in one sense, Jesus had nowhere to lay his head. Right? Remember the passage in Luke where Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. But in another sense, Jesus uh, did have a place where he invited them over to where he's staying. In verse 39, he said to them, come and you will see. And they came and saw where he was staying. So he did have a place that he was staying, at least temporarily. But one thing we can certainly make note of here is it seems to kind of get lost in the shuffle, the emphasis of where he's staying. Jesus didn't have a mansion like King Herod. He didn't have a governor's estate like Pilate. He didn't have a palace like Caiaphas, the high priest. But these disciples wanted to come spend time with Jesus. They didn't care so much about the structure of his home as they cared about the details of his life. They weren't looking so much to be overwhelmed by his real estate. They wanted to be overshadowed by his divinity. They didn't want to see the town. They wanted to see Jesus. And so when they asked the question, where are you staying? They're really asking, can we come hang out with you? Can we come spend some time with you? We want to see how you spend your evening. We want to know what you do first thing when you get up in the morning. We want to know how you eat and how you interact with other people. They're really asking, can we come abide with you? Can we come stay with you? Where are you staying? We want to be with you. And that's what discipleship is all about, right? Not only listening to one's teaching, but watching one's life. It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said in that great work, uh, on discipleship, he said, salvation is free, but discipleship will cost you your life. And I think that's part of what the disciples were getting after here. Hey, we've heard your teaching. We know you're the lamb. Where are you staying? Where are you staying, Christ? I want to come stay where you're staying because I need to be discipled by you life on life. The third lesson we need to learn this morning about discipleship would be this. True discipleship lives a life of submission. Look at verse 39 again. Here's what we're reading. He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw the place where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. Here's your next blank there on number three. True discipleship lives a life of submission. A, Jesus both commands and invites us to join him. Notice how Jesus is patient with these two disciples. I mean, they never really answered his question. Remember, the question was, what are you seeking? They never really answered it. They simply said, where are you staying? But Jesus just rolled with it. He's so patient with us, isn't he? He's so patient with us when we don't really get it. Jesus is just like, all right, y'all come on and stay with me. Y'all come on over to where I'm staying at. Y'all can spend some time with me. So they came where he was staying. And so this statement by Christ, he said, come and you will see. It's a command just as much as it's an invitation. It's a command, but he says it in a nice way. It's a command because it's actually in the imperative. He doesn't say, if you feel like it, if you want to, when you find time. He says, no, no, y'all come, come and stay with me. So it's this kind of double-edged sword of it's a nice invitation, but it's also a command that we come and follow him. It's the way that Jesus talks throughout the Gospels when he says, come to me, all who are labor, 
uh, all who uh, labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's how Jesus talks when he says, drink of this water, eat of this bread, leave your father and mother, do not serve two masters, be salt and light, enter by the narrow gate, ask and it will be given unto you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. You see, Jesus invites us, but he also commands us. And I want to know if you're living a life of submission to Christ. Jesus said, if you love me, John 14, 15, you will keep my commandments. And so here we see again, discipleship is about submission to the command and here the invitation and command together of the Lord. A second thing we can learn from verse 39 would be this. Jesus is never too busy for you. Jesus is never too busy for you. Notice again, the best of verse 39 says that they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. They came and spent the day with Jesus. Commentators argue about whether the 10th hour means that it was later in, in the day. The Jewish calendar would have targeted this to be about 4 p.m. The Roman record of keeping time would have said this would have been about 10 a.m. Most commentators say that it's the Roman time of 10 a.m. since the text says that he stayed with them that day. And so these disciples spent the day with Jesus. You and I have trouble spending five minutes with him before we get up in the morning and go to work. These disciples spent the day with Christ, and you and I have trouble spending 15 minutes with Christ in prayer. You see, part of discipleship is submitting to him and coming to him and being reminded he's not too busy for you. It's not like when you call him that he's like, wait just a minute. Sometimes I fear my kids feel that from me, right? Have you ever been at home and your kids are like, dad, dad, dad? Dad, dad, dad. And sometimes maybe I might communicate to them, not right now, son, just a minute. Daddy's busy. Let me get this done. Let me finish this text. Let me watch this touchdown right here. Let me, let me, let me just do what I'm doing. I'll get to you when I get time. And Christ was never like that. Our Father in heaven is never like that. It's never like we keep calling and calling his name. He's just like, y'all want to come on over? Come on over to my house. Come on over and stay where I'm staying. He's never too busy for you. And the point is, is that John the Apostle even remembers the exact time when he met Jesus. He said it was about the 10th hour. That's the way it is with any important event in your life. You know exactly where you were. You know exactly what time it was. I still never forget the day that I got accepted to PA school. I remember exactly where I was when I opened that letter and read, congratulations, you've been accepted. I'll never forget where I was on 9-11. You remember where you were? You can probably tell me the exact moment and the exact person you were with on 9-11. I'll never forget the day I was introduced to this woman right here, Lisa C. Houston, now Lisa Tyson, because my heart stopped for like an hour, and then it finally came back. So I remember the first time, I remember when I got that phone call from Dr. Barrick saying, would you be the pastor of Placerito Bible? I can tell you exactly where I was and what time it was. Because that's the way it is with big things in your life. When something happens in your life and it changes you, you know where you were and you know what was going on. And I think that's part of what the author John is saying here. It's about the 10th hour. That's when I met Jesus. That's when he started asking questions of me. That's when he invited me to come over to his place. That's when I started walking with Christ. That's when I started really following him. And if you've come to Christ, I believe that many of you will know that day and that hour. 
Now, it is true that many of our kids who grew up in the church may not be able to articulate the exact moment in time when they got saved, and that's fine. But I think for a number of you, you could tell me right here, right now, exactly where you were as God spoke to your heart through the Word of God and you gave your life to Christ. All the sovereign grace of God in your life, but you know the hour when Christ spoke to you. A fourth truth about discipleship would be this. Number four, a true disciple lives life on mission. He lives a life on mission. Look at the next blank. Disciples follow Christ. Disciples follow Christ. Look at verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And so we've talked about this a little bit already, but I just want you to take note of the fact that Andrew was following Christ. He was becoming part of that road. He was going down the same path. Andrew is not a groupie. You know what a groupie is? We've got a lot of them in L.A. All right? They like to hang out with their favorite band, follow their favorite celebrity, and yet they have no relationship whatsoever. They just want to be close to them. They show up when the sun's shining, and when it starts raining, they all go home. That's not what Andrew is. He's not a groupie. Jesus isn't looking for any groupies. He's not looking for a lot of people who just tag along. He's looking for followers. And our culture is saturated with groupies. Groupies, again, are infatuated with the idea of being close, but they're not really being involved. Groupies are all about attending, but not about serving. Groupies are all about talk, but there's no sure action. Jesus didn't call groupies to himself. Jesus called disciples, followers of him. And that's who Andrew is. He is a follower of Christ. James 1.22 says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. I hope that you're a true follower today of Christ, not a groupie of Christ. Andrew was a doer. And what was it that he did? Your next blank Disciples find others who need Christ. One of the first marks that lets you know whether or not you are a true disciple of Christ is you got to start telling other people about Jesus. Verse 41, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. The first thing that Andrew did after he came to Christ was to go find his brother. And by all indications, Andrew was a humble guy. I mean, it is he who found Jesus first, but for the rest of his life, he gets referred to as Simon Peter's brother, right? The rest of his life, it's not like Peter's Andrew's brother. No, it's the other way around. The rest of his life, oh, I'm, I'm Peter's brother. Oh, you know Peter? I'm his brother. I'm his brother. But he doesn't seem to mind too much, does he? The first thing he wants to do is go find Peter and bring him to Jesus. The happy privilege of every believer ought to be to tell others about Christ for to tell others about Christ, there is no Bible college required. To tell others about Christ, you don't have to go to seminary. To tell others about Christ, you don't have to get the elder's permission. To tell others about Christ means you're following Christ, and you're going out and you're finding somebody who doesn't know Christ, and oh, by the way, why not start with your family, right? Why not start with your mom and your dad and your brother and your sister and your aunt and your uncle and your cousin, and I know what you're thinking already. You're thinking, well, Adam, I've tried that. I've tried to talk to my family about Christ. They told me don't talk to them about it anymore. Well, what did God tell you to do? Just because they tell you not to talk to them about Christ anymore, is God pleased with that? I would say to you today, try it one more time. 
pray one more time that God would open up a door. I'm not, I'm not saying just march in there and be rude, but I am saying be tactful, be wise, look for ways to get in. Don't say, well, I tried to share the gospel with my brother years ago, and he shut me down, and I've never uh, explored the idea since. No. Maybe just based on this very fact that Andrew went out and found his brother could encourage you today. You know what? I got a brother who doesn't know Christ. I got an aunt, an uncle, a cousin again who doesn't know Christ. I'm going to go after them. That just seems to be Andrew's habit. In fact, every time we see him in Scripture, he's bringing somebody to Jesus. That's what he's doing with Peter here in this text. In John 6, at the feeding of the 5,000, it's Andrew who finds the boy with the, with the bread and the fish. In John 12, both Andrew and Philip find some Greek men, and they bring them to Jesus. And so here in this passage, Andrew says, Simon, we found the Messiah, which means Christ. Literally, Messiah means the anointed one. We've talked about this already. The Greek word here is the word Christos, the word for Christ. The transliteration of the Hebrew is the word Messiah. And so in the Old Testament, it would be the anointing. The anointed one would be one of three offices, right? You could be the office of prophet, like Elisha was anointed in 1 Kings 19. You could be the office of priest. Aaron was anointed in Leviticus 8. Or the office of king. David was anointed in 1 Samuel 16. Jesus is the only person who fulfills all three offices. He is the prophet. He is our high priest, and he is the eternal king. So Jesus is the Messiah. He's the anointed one, and Andrew wants Peter to know it. The next blank we see is this. Disciples follow through on their mission. They follow through on their mission. Notice verse 42 says, the first part, he brought him to Jesus. Let me just stop right there. They follow through. They follow through. He brought him to Jesus. Bringing Peter to Jesus wasn't just something that Andrew talked about. It's not just something that he set out to do. It's something he did. And I think a lot of times we talk about bringing others to church. We talk about inviting our neighbors. We talk about witnessing to somebody. And then a little time passes and we never follow through with our initiative to bring them to Christ. And I just want you to take note this morning that he brought him to Jesus. Andrew followed through. He was determined for Peter to come to know Christ. How determined are you? How determined are you with strangers to come to Christ? How determined are you with your neighbors and co-workers to come to Christ? How determined are you with your family and coming to Christ? Are you a true disciple? Are you living a life on mission? Living a life like this takes persistence and perseverance. Some years back, there was a 12-year-old boy named David Withoff who wore the same Green Bay Packers football jersey every day for over four years. For 1,581 straight days, David donned the jersey of his hero, quarterback Brett Favre. Week after week, month after month, school year after school year, David's classmates didn't have to wonder whom he admired the most. When they looked at David Withoff, they saw Brett Favre. Perhaps this is what Paul means when he wrote, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe we could learn something from that kid who just couldn't take that jersey off but wore it with persistence and devotion to his idol. Maybe we need to learn a little bit about just putting on Christ every moment of every day that we would be persistent to follow Christ and to find others who need Christ. And when people see us, they're going to say, he's going to tell me about Christ. I know he is. He's coming after me again. May it be so. 
that we would follow through with our efforts, that we would trust God with the results, that we wouldn't give up. Don't quit. Be a faithful disciple. A fifth and final lesson on discipleship. Number five, a true disciple accepts his transformation. Your next blank says, Jesus sees us as we are. Jesus sees us as we are. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him, verse 42, and said, you are Simon, the son of John. Okay, he said, you're Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. When Jesus saw Simon, he said, you shall be called Cephas. The name Cephas is the Aramaic name for Peter, which means rock. So Cephas is in the Aramaic. Peter is in the Greek. But the focus here is on the idea of it means the word rock. He was to be a soul that was steadfast and solid. Now, if you know anything about Peter, you know that he wasn't always a rock. Right? He's been nicknamed the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth. Right? Peter was impulsive. He was quick to speak, slow to listen. Peter rebuked the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter denied him three times. Peter was confused with the Judaizers in Galatia. Peter had a lot of issues as he went through his life. And so the question may be, well, why did Jesus here at this point in time call him, want to call Simon Peter, which means rock? And I would say the answer to that question would be because not only did Jesus see Peter as he was, but he saw him as, as, he, as who he would be. And that's your next blank, right? Jesus also sees us as we will be. Jesus knew that Peter would grow into being the leader of the Jerusalem church. Jesus knew Peter would be a fearless apostle. It was Peter who proclaimed the gospel at Pentecost. It was Peter who was arrested for healing the lame man by the temple. It was Peter who evangelized Cornelius the centurion. Thus, the name Peter, meaning rock, would both inform Simon of who he was, but also let him know of who, is, who he was to become. Right? It was a challenge for him to pursue that. And over time, Jesus would transform Simon's character to match the new name that he had given him. Peter would be used as the foundational leader of the earliest days of the Christian church. And so let me just ask you this morning, aren't you glad that Jesus is still in the transformation business? Aren't you glad he's still changing names? Aren't you glad this morning that Jesus is still molding your character? Aren't you glad that Jesus still sees you as you are, and he loves you, but he also sees you as he's called you to be, and he's going to conform you and change you day in and day out, and I don't know about you, but I can't wait to get there. I can't wait to become the man God's called me to be. I know who I am today, but I know who God's called me to be, and you better know who God's called you to be, a man, a woman, a mother, a daughter, a son, a father, on fire for Christ. He's called you to be a disciple in the most faithful of ways, using the gifts that he's given you to magnify him. And if God's called you into himself to be a disciple, he wants to change you, persevere you in your growth, and give you a passion and a fire for him. Only God can do that, and he wants to do it if you're a disciple of his this morning. Well, maybe many of you remember that Christian poem, The Touch of the Master's Hand, written by Myra Brooks Welch in 1921. Here's how the poem goes. "'Twas battered and scarred, and the auctioneer thought it scarcely worth its while to waste much time on the old violin, but he held it up with a smile. "'What am I bid, good folks?' cried he. "'Who'll start the bidding for me?' 
A dollar, one dollar, then two, only two, two dollars. And who will make it three? Going for three? But no. From the back of the room, far back, a gray-haired man came forward and picked up the bow. And wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening and loosening its strings, he played a melody, pure and sweet, as sweet as a caroling angel sings. The music ceased in the auctioneer in a voice that was quiet and low said, now what am I bid for the old violin as he held it up with the bow? A thousand dollars, then two, only two, two thousand, and who will make it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice, and going, gone, cried he. The people cheered, but some of them said, we do not understand what changed its worth. Quick came the reply, the touch of the master's hand. And many a man with his life out of tune, battered and scarred by sin, is auctioned cheap to a thoughtless crowd, much like that old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game, and he travels on. He is going once, he is going twice, he is going and almost gone. But the master comes, and the foolish crowd never can quite understand the worth of a soul and the change that is wrought by the touch of the master's hand. What a great reminder for us this morning to know that no matter where you are in your walk with Christ, if your life is out of tune this morning, the master can pick you up and dust you off and make your life something beautiful. Be a disciple of Christ. Follow him faithfully. Let me ask you these couple of parting questions, and you can chew on them maybe throughout the rest of the day as a response to this sermon. Number one, have you made the transition from those who are pointing you to Christ to a personal relationship with Christ? Listen to me. There are those people who like hanging around the things of God. They like hanging around the people of God, but they don't know God. It's time for you, if you're here in this room and you've been hanging around people who know Christ, to make the transition from being a disciple of that person to being a disciple of Christ. Don't be ultimately discipled by your parents. Be discipled by Christ. Make the leap. Make the transition. Move from the person and move to the powerful Savior, the Lord Jesus. Second question, are you living a life of submission to Christ, answering his questions and obeying his commands? Remember the question Jesus asked of you today, what are you seeking? What are you seeking today? I hope that you'll answer that honestly, and then you'll follow his invitation to come and to dwell where he lives. And then last, are you aware of the transformation that is taking place from seeing who you are to seeing who you will be. Maybe today God has called you his child and you know not why. Maybe today he's called you out of darkness into light and he's given you an opportunity to be a great disciple of Christ. And just be reminded, just as Peter was called the rock early on when Christ first met him and he lived into that name throughout his life, so may it be that through the rest of your life as you call yourself a disciple, that you would be known as a powerful follower humble yet confident in the grace of God in your life that you would be a faithful disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity this morning to look at this passage of Scripture. Oh, how our hearts are stirred up today as we consider John the Baptist continuing to point at Jesus, saying, Behold the Lamb 
of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I pray that this morning, God, we would be converted by that preaching of the word of God, that we would be transformed by that friend and that family member who continues to reach out to us. God, that if there would be somebody here who knows you not, that this day, Lord, that they would bow the knee to Christ and that you would show them all of your glory, that you would show them your unconditional love and your desire to save sinners, to bring us out of darkness into light. God, I pray for the believers here in this room. Would you cause us to be more faithful disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ? Father, we don't want to just barely get into the relationship that we have with you. We know that you draw us close to be followers, to be disciples, to be servants, to be slaves to Christ. We have a new master. We're under new management. We're excited to see what you'll do in this church as we continue to learn what it means to be a disciple of Christ. As we live out these truths from your word, bless us this week to share time and share experiences with one another that would glorify our great God and King through the power of Jesus Christ and through the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.